You're listening to the Morphology Podcast. Thanks for tuning into the Morphology Podcast, aka Murph here to share interviews about biking experiences from cyclists who have pedaled to places all over. Each week, we will get to know new people and explore new destinations to ride your bike. As you listen to these adventures, you may wonder, why haven't I done that yet? Well, Frankie Holt wasn't really into cycling when she had a life-changing experience while on a bike trip with her sister. She was in her 40s, and that bicycle trip gave her new energy, new confidence, and the realization that freedom came with cycling. She also realized she couldn't find a cycling bag that was quite right for what she needed. So she went about creating her own and her company, Fierce Hazel, was born. At Fierce Hazel, Frankie sells products that are unique, eco-friendly, and sustainable. She cares about the planet along with the people who make her products and even uses rescued materials that would otherwise end up in the landfill. Frankie has created and sells the lightest, full-size wallet out there, along with other bike bags that are functional and appeal to everyone. On this episode, Frankie tells us about her journey into cycling and starting her California-based, woman-owned bicycle bag company. You can find Fierce Hazel products at fiercehazel.com. For now, here's Frankie. A very warm welcome to Frankie Holt. Hi, Frankie. Hey, so happy to be here. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, and um, I said this in the intro, but you own an amazing women-owned bicycle bag company called Fierce Hazel, and I want to get yep. into that. And um, like, well, there's so many questions I have about Fierce Hazel, especially the name, which I, spoiler alert, I already read up on it, and <laughs> I love the story. But before we get into, you know, your successes as a business owner, will you tell the listeners where you live now and what the cycling culture is like? Yeah, definitely. Um, one, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure um, yeah. to be speaking with you today. And yeah, I live in Los Angeles, um, kind of in like, kind of the center, like Hollywood area. Oh, wow. And um, there's a tremendous cycling culture here. It's mostly uh, road cycling. I think the nature of LA and the weather, I mean, we get lots of like pro athletes. So the the level of cycling tends to be fairly um, high, mm. um, which is both good and bad. Um, a lot of the group rides are very fast. It's a huge community, but it's not, it can be hard to break into sure. um, if you're, if you're new to cycling. Actually, I didn't start cycling until after I turned 40. Oh, wow. Um, and it changed my life. Um, like I first clipped into a bike actually in North Carolina, um, Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, my sister and her husband took me on a just a little bike trip and I fell in love with it. Like totally fell in love with cycling, especially being in the mountains mm -hmm. and that kind of solo riding with friends or it was family, but it just felt great. And I got back to LA and I knew nothing about where to bike here. Like, I mean, I actually, I did some commuting when I was in college, but I was just had no idea where yeah, to start. Yeah. Uh, luckily I kind of met someone um, who introduced me to, um, you know, how to get a bike and this and that. And by the stroke of good luck, my first, group ride was with an incredible, very inclusive, very welcoming group, mm. which 
um, knowing what I know now, looking back, that was just a stroke of luck. And um, it could have been all... a could have been a deal breaker had it been the opposite. Had it been uh, like you got to go as fast as you can. Your your kit yeah. has to be at least three hundred dollars, and you know there's so many yeah. other factors. Oh, so much. Yeah, I mean, just and I'm well. We, most of many of us are very influenced by who we meet, and uh, yeah. So I showed up, you know, by myself to the parking lot. There are people, you know, getting their bikes out, and I didn't know anyone because my friend couldn't make it that day. <sighs> and you know, some women there. I mean, it was the women and men ride, but some women came up, and just there was this very nice woman cyclist, you know, who like stayed with me the whole time and like helped me with flats and um it was just kind of like an ideal scenario for our first group ride and as i got you know more and more into cycling i met other groups in la and, and ventured out and it's very much a road cycling culture mm-hmm. i mean also when i started biking it was around well i turned 40 in 2008 so it was in that time period and it was before there was i think you gravel racing um there was um uh, cross racing but i'm like there weren't mm-hmm. even gravel bikes and the well la is, is just you know sunny most of the year round there's incredible mountain climbing and kind of malibu and and lots of hills so it was it's very conducive for that kind of epic road cycling culture Right, um, right. And when I think of LA, you know, maybe it's because I'm I'm an Iowan, but I'm thinking like major traffic and you stopping and starting a gazillion times. But I'm going to guess you know where to go to find the beauty and the like you said the mountains and all the good stuff. Yeah, and there's definitely both um there's definitely that. Like the um the first group that I started riding with, they were very much kind of in the city, but being in a big group, there was always you know, 20 to 40 people starting out. So oh, yeah. you're definitely safer um, going through town when you can take the lane. And But yeah, you can, unfortunately, you do need, well, for my type of cycling, road cycling, a car, you know, to drive to Malibu or to drive to the San Gabriel Mountains mm-hmm. and kind of start from a different place. I'm lucky where I live in LA, I can quickly get to Griffith Park, which is a nice, it's where the observatory is. Mm. And, but there, there is a, um, uh, kind of a gravel community that started. So that's another option these days. And I was just going to ask you if, you know, as the years have progressed, have you dabbled more into gravel or are you still primarily road? I'm, I feel like I'm primarily gravel. Oh, wow. A hundred percent. I just, well, it is, like you mentioned the, the car issue. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, like many of us over the years, we know people or have accidents. And when I'm on gravel, I just feel like I'm a kid again. <laughs> you know, like it's definitely, you know, it's it's effort and it's a little bit harder. And yeah. I think actually the type of cycling that gravel is, is more conducive to me and my body type and what I like, uh-huh. which is slightly more, you know, like shorter rides that are maybe harder with more power. Um, still you have to be on point looking for, you know, rocks and holes and all that kind of stuff that we know about. So it definitely takes a nice concentration, but I feel like I'm more in the moment of cycling as opposed to worrying about cars. Yeah. 
I, my yeah. experience uh, biking in California is pretty limited because uh, I rode across America and we oh, started cool. in San Diego. Mm-hmm. So my only experience was from the coast, you know, to the state border. Um, but even in that small amount of time, I think, you know, of course we saw the ocean, but then we did some major climbs. Um, we, uh, for some reason, I think it was just the adventure cycling maps we had to ride on. I think it's Interstate 10 for mm-hmm. several days where yeah, I traffic... Yeah, I know the route a little bit from, from watching it or, yeah. Yeah, but um, I need to come back and experience gravel because it just sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's not amazing. Like, I mean, I would love... I can't wait to bike in Iowa yeah. um, at some point. It's, it's not... It's amazing in a different way. Yeah. It's it's um it's not... From, from my experience, I've, not that I've biked a ton of places in the u.s on gravel but i prefer to leave la just because yeah there's there's more mm-hmm. um like you can get on a on a gravel road and just bike for many many miles where here in la it tends to be more technical and a little more steep oh, okay. and um and there's for sure there's areas but you kind of end up doing the same loops when you're at, you know, it's unless you're super daredevil-ish, and I'm not super daredevil-ish. Like I don't like, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I, I'm not keen on a lot of single track. You know, yeah. oh my god, I'm just like that's not my my vibe. Yeah. So I I love um, when I can leaving LA and getting outside. Even um, I've discovered recently Patagonia, Arizona, mm. which is um, a day's drive from where I live in LA, and. It's um, south of Tucson, and they have a really nice uh, gravel community and even have some, like, gravel-specific um, Airbnbs you can stay at and uh. routes. And um, just really, I when I can, I love to travel other places for oh, gravel. Yeah. You know? Okay, so you're riding your bike, and at some point you decided that you needed either a bag or something to – a place to store your stuff while biking, right? Yeah. So um, – Tell us the story of how this, you know, thought or quest became a full-fledged business. Yeah, I mean, a couple, um, a couple things led up to it. I mean, as I mentioned, I didn't start biking until after I turned forty, and it really kind of changed my life. It was, it was kind of it's on the bike where I feel like the most confident and uh, where I have the most fun for sure. But. Um, but getting to that place was significant, not just for biking, but until I was, before I was 40, I was, had been in some abusive relationships mm-hmm. and had um, like obese. And so what I had learned was by the time I was 40, like I had the the ability to make my life better. Mm. Um, I, I could make the changes that made me happier. Um, so when I was single again and, and, and found the bike, it really just kind of made me like I said this before, but like I felt like I, I was a kid again, and yeah. I just ran with it. And so I really got into cycling. I mentioned that you know I found a nice group of cyclists here in LA to start biking with, and I just got more and more into it to the point where um, I was uh, competing in events, mm-hmm. you know, you know, kind of racing. And um, in my forties, like again, two things happened. Was one is that I developed fibroids, which if there's any uh, women or maybe men out there that know about that, you often get a lot of heavy bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was happening, especially during these long training rides, because I was 
training for kind of these epic endurance events, like long, um, big rides, mm-hmm. is that I had heavy bleeding during my um, training rides, and I was actually kind of embarrassed about it, like having tampons in my back pocket, which I know I was a grown woman, but it was just, I don't know, I was embarrassed, and it was weird for me. <laughs> and then there was nothing on the market that suited the needs of like a menstruating person. Like there just wasn't anything out there. Um, and the second thing that happened was, um, like I said, I was training for these big events and this one event, uh, still ongoing and it's, um, started in the LA Southern California area. And it turned out, um, to be a very non-inclusive event. Um, like for example, the, like the SAG stops had like women in bikinis to like encourage you on. And, and there were race segments that were named after kind of derogatory sexual positions. Mm. It was just very, I mean, this was what year was it? 19, I mean, sorry, 19, 2015. Um, so things have changed a bit since then, but it was just, um, actually a lot of women backed out, but I had been training for it. I'd actually hired a coach to kind of get me in shape and I didn't want to, you know, I trained for it. So I wanted to, to do it. Um, and it was, you know, it's like 147 miles. It was, um, now we would call it gravel riding, but it was a lot of dirt riding and we were just riding road bikes. So I was riding like tires that were, you know, 25. It was oh like my gosh. Um, going wow. down, yeah, single track <laughs> and, um, dirt and, and rock gardens. And it was, um, crazy. And, you know, I finished. You know, I did, I, I didn't, you know, I crashed, well, I was crashed out a couple of times, but it was very epic and I finished. But what was at the end of the race, even though I finished it, um, I didn't feel super acknowledged. Mm. Um, because what I, what happened over the couple of years of biking is I found myself in a, in a group of people that you kind of needed to be as fast as them to be as good as them. Uh. That was kind of the mentality. And I mean, I see that now, but what had happened like the um, like this sport that had, had given me so much joy, it kind of was losing its sparkle, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of lost touch with that person who who got me started biking in the first place. So year, years pass, um, I was kind of like feeling blah about cycling. I was missing it, um, but then I kind of remembered what had got me there in the first place. That is, if there's something that I didn't like, I could change it. And that's when I um, created that first, my all conditions ride pouch, which is a little pouch that is designed to fit in your back jersey pocket to put all your basics, like your you know ID, has a little place for a handy wipe, but it also has a slot for a tampon. I was just going to say, I bet you it had a place for a tampon. <laughs> yeah. And the same with the, um, I have a, a larger size wallet, which is the um, Tour de Fierce ultralight cycling case in the front. It has a slot. Um, and you can put anything in it, chapstick, a pen, a pencil, a tire mm-hmm. lever. But it was the thought was that you could put a tampon in there. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to have products that weren't necessarily gender specific. You don't have to be a menstruating person to use them. But they were just designed with all people in mind. And it was the vibe of the brand. I really wanted to feel as if it is inclusive to, to all people mm-hmm. um, and really support anyone who who bikes. You know, it's not about racing. If you do, do race, it's cool. Like I enjoy it when I can, but it's just about getting out there and trying to 
for me, latch into that first feeling of that first group ride mm-hmm. where it was just a nice feeling, but it was hard, you know, and you pushed yourself, but you had someone there to help you when you needed it. It was, it was, yeah. So that's, that's the start of Fierce Hazel. Yeah. And did you make those first bags with the intention to sell them to other women or were you doing it like, I just need this for myself. And then people started seeing it and going, oh my gosh, where'd you get that? Yeah, um, a little bit. It was both ish. I, I made it for myself and initially just with other women thinking, thinking I would just sell to women. Mm-hmm. And as things progressed and I'm learning, I mean, I, I went into starting um, Fierce Hazel with absolutely no experience in gear design or even being in the outdoor industry. And I knew I did, I wanted to make products that didn't look like anyone else um, and, or any other product, I mm-hmm. guess. And as I learned more and more about the industry and making gear, I um, learned about the astronomical waste that happens um, in manufacturing. And I mean, it was a different story, but that's what led me to this factory in Vietnam where I make it. That's an ethical factory using dead stock. But back to your question is that I thought I would be making items for women, but also looking at the cycling industry, a couple things. One, it's it's mostly men mm-hmm. that um, are cyclists for, well, that's not necessarily true, but for better, for worse, that's um, the market. Um, but also I didn't want to, in the spirit of being inclusive, I just, I didn't want to design things for just one, um, like demographic. One use. Oh, yeah. Okay. Or mm-hmm. one demographic. Like right. I really want, I like all, it's for everyone, men, women. And in fact, most of my customers demographic tend to are men, um, which I'm kind of, uh, I'm say I'm proud of, but it's, it's, it's like a, I found a nice community of people mm-hmm. who don't care if there's a slot for a tampon because they can put a, pin in there (laughs) (laughs) and um (laughs) maybe some beef jerky or something (laughs) yeah and I did make it I mean kind of for myself but the the little pouch it was an item that was missing in the industry like so many people use Ziploc bags to put their phone in and their ID Mm -hmm. and um and of course we all acclimate you find something that makes you know a little pouch for carrying pencils or something you use and I wanted to make something that was very specific to the jersey pocket mm-hmm. um for exactly for those essentials so um that that item I think it was missing from the market when I first made it A quick interruption to tell you this week's episode is sponsored by the Buffalo Lodge Bicycle Resort. Located in Colorado Springs, Colorado, this is the outdoor enthusiast, ideal place to stay for fun and relaxation. The lodge is nestled at the base of Pikes Peak and just a half mile from Garden of the Gods Park. Learn more at BicycleResort.com. Now back to the show. Can you tell us uh, how the name Fierce Hazel came to be? Yeah, um, well, fierce is, well, a couple of things, it's just fierce. Like, you know, how can you not like the word fierce? Right. Because it's just a fun word. And Hazel came, when I was in college, I was uh, did a lot of making my own clothes. One, for economic reasons, because I kind of had to, but also I was overweight. And at the time, very hard time finding clothes that fit me. Mm. Um, I just... This I was in college in the late 80s, um, and I just didn't know where to go to find big size clothes. Clothes, and so um, made a lot of my own clothes, 
and being a kind of the ironic art school student, <laughs> I was at a thrift store and I saw these tags and they said, especially fashioned by Hazel. Mm. And so every the clothes that I made, I would sew this tag into thinking it was just fun and ironic. <laughs> cool. um, but that kind of like alter ego kind of stayed with me, um, kind of just as the kind of person that when you need something, you can make it yourself. Yeah. And um, that, yeah, I don't know if it's an alter ego or just part of my personality. And so putting Fierce and Hazel together seemed to make sense. And also it does it fit my well, my personality, but also the um, the vibe I want to put out with Fierce Hazel, the company, that you know, you can do hard things and, and do fierce things and just be the Hazel, you know, do it at your own pace and feel awkward and, and maybe not look like what the dominant culture says you should look like. And, um, it's just a nice, nice mix. And also the, the initials kind of match my, my name. So, um, so F H Frankie Holt, Fierce Hazel, it kind of goes together and, um, yeah, it just seems to fit for some reason. And also I want to be a little bit unique. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of stood out as being, being different. And it's, perfect for what you just explained like it's you know I don't know if you put all of this deep thought into it when you first you know originally was like you know what I'm gonna make a bag and call it fierce hazel but it makes so much sense yeah hmm. thank you yeah um you know I would say based on what you've just told us that you know some of the things that you're really proud of is that you know you're women owned and that you know men still buy your products but do you have something that you're most proud of when you think of fierce hazel I, I mean, a couple things. I mean, I'm definitely, well, product-wise, I'm most proud of the ultralight uh, wallet that we make. Mm -hmm. It's um, because it's the it's a full-size wallet, and it's the, the lightest one in the industry. Like it's any it's it's lighter than any other full-size wallet on the planet. Wow. Well, that yeah. Yeah. For, it's and it's made out of dead stock. Mm. It's a ultra lightweight material and. Um, and that's one of the reasons I found the factory in Vietnam because I wanted to work with this uh, ripstop that's super lightweight. It's it's water resistant, but you have to uh, seam seal it and laser cut it. And I think it's pretty cool that I, I made the lightest one that you can find for a full size wallet. And I think that is pretty cool. And also out of dead stock, so using the leftover material um, from the factory. Um, so other companies, so dead stock. And how I use it is this factory in Vietnam, they make uh, gear for other outdoor brands. Mm -hmm. And often the, these bigger companies uh, order too much or have leftover fabric and it just sits. Well, sometimes often it's just thrown away because often companies make fabric that is uh, in a custom color or has their branding on it. or And so no one else can use it. Like imagine – Imagine Tiffany's mm -hmm. made a cycling wallet and they would put their Tiffany blue. Well, no, that's, that's trademarked. Like no oh, other company can use Tiffany blue. And um, most big brands have their custom colors. Um, and if they make their own fabric in their company branding colors, like I can't use, no one else can use it. So that gets right. thrown away. Right. Um, which is just kind of a, a travesty. But yeah. Um, but many companies, you know, make stuff using kind of off-the-shelf colors, and they they order too much. They want to make sure they have enough. And there's just stuff left over at the factory. And um, because this factory makes gear for other 
kind of high-end outdoor companies and brands. Um, anyway, they save the material and they, and so I uh, use it for my, my products, which is why the, the pouches and the wallets have a kind of a mix max of colors. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I'm just using what they have, um, left over. And so I think it's, um, pretty cool. And actually another cool thing about the factory is I'm the first woman they've um, ever worked with. Oh, no so. way. <laughs> Wow. Were you, have you been able to go to Vietnam to actually go to the factory? Oh yeah, for sure. It was important for me to to go there just to check out the work environment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, one of the reasons I chose Vietnam, well, they have a history or, um, of just having good, um, craftsmanship and, and the skills that are needed to make this type of product. Um, and, but I wanted to go over and yeah, and, and check out the factory and, and make sure it was, Doing, doing my due diligence to the best of my ability to make sure it's a good place to make my product. For sure. Um, and, it, and it was helpful because while I was over there, I mean, I checked out other factories. One um, story I kind of interesting learning experience was I thought I would make, because knowing I would be using leftover material, I wouldn't necessarily have a certain branding colorway for my products. Mm. I'm just using whatever they have. And I thought, well, maybe I'd have like a really fun custom uh, zipper pull to make with the Fierce Hazel logo and it'd be, you know, something cool to put on zipper pull. And so while I was there, I went to a zipper pull factory hmm. and, um, the one that I went to was a big one and there was probably a hundred people working in this huge warehouse factory and you walk in and it just smells of plastic, just mm. smell it. And what it is, it was like mostly women sitting in front of these plastic mold pouring machines, whatever they're called. And every zipper pull like is plastic poured into a mold that they pull off one by, well, you know, one mold might have six to 10 different little, um, zipper molds in it, but they're just sitting in front of plastic all day long. Wow. And I'm like, Oh, I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah. <laughs> like we have to use plastic. I'm not saying it's, um, you know, it's the best of my ability, you know, I want to make choices that aren't going to harm other people. Right. And when I went to a zipper pull factory and saw how zipper pulls are made, I was just like, wow. So that's why when I can, my zipper pulls are made from just the fabric that's that's sewn, mm-hmm. um, sewn together. Um, and I do have some ultralight plastic like key fobs and whatnot. But when you're buying off the shelf, so to speak, um, not not custom made, they, um, they have a... a better environmental impact as opposed to making custom plastic pieces. Mm. And and how um, interesting to actually go and see firsthand, you know, like a lot of things that you look at in life um, and for you, your business, like, you know, oh, wonder, wonder how this is made. And then you kind of maybe shrug it off and move on, but to actually see it and go, oh, geez. Yeah. I don't oh, want to yeah. be part of that. Well, the whole process of starting this business has been such a great learning experience in so many ways for me. Uh, but that's definitely uh, a big one, the one that you just touched on. Mm-hmm. And just seeing that ev- everything down to our underwear is made by hand. Wow. Everything's made by hand. Like we, we, we are so detached from how things are made these days that it's was, yeah, eye opening. And yeah. also, and, and also to feel like I want to feel uh, myself, but also with um, those who might buy Fierce Hazel products or choose other environmentally friendly products that we can make a difference mm-hmm. it's because you can it can feel so overwhelming when you think about 
our systems and it just gets you know overwhelming but we can make a difference little choices here and there help you know like one one sale to my business helps me Mm -hmm. you know where once it's it's it makes a difference and um and even down to all my my product packaging um, wherever possible i don't use any plastics and and most of my items are packaged in cotton bags that come from the factory so even the packaging from the factory um Mm. there's no plastic Mm. And you've come such a long way from that first thought of, I need a little pouch to put in my jersey. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm on your website right now, and I can see all the different products that you now have. Like, do you have a favorite? Well, this is probably like, you know, asking which child is your favorite. So <laughs> but assuming that none of your well, products are listening right now, do you have like well, a favorite have right a now? Well, I mean, this kind of goes back to what the being at the factory and the factory, but another fun um we call it serendipitous moment when i was at the factory they were making a product for another company that were these kind of outdoor hammock cocoon like things Hmm. and part of the process of making these big outdoor um, hanging things (laughs) cocoons was they would cut out a big circle of fabric Um, that would be where it would enter into this cocoon just hammock kind of thing Mm -hmm. and those pieces of fabric was being thrown away on the landfill Wow. And they're pretty big pieces of scrap. They weren't like little, you know, they're like, I don't know, a few. Anyway, a nice big piece of scrap. And and I'd had this idea that at some point in the future, I wanted to make a little backpack. Mm. Um, I'd found this vintage Swiss Army uh, backpack from the um, World War II, I think, at a Paris flea market. And um, I thought it'd be really handy on the bike for all kinds of people. And I happened to bring it with me. And so again, my luck would have it. There was this fabric on the floor that I discovered and we made it into our first um, backpack. It's the um, Urban Explorer bag. But that fabric, I think is what I'm most proud of discovering. Um, It's called Olefin. And even though it is a petroleum product, but it's one of the most eco-friendly, lowest carbon footprint uh, materials out there because it's actually made from petroleum waste. So it was invented by an Italian scientist in the 60s. You know, that was when uh, plastic manufacturing was just going full steam, like the beginning of it. And there was still a lot of waste happening um, that was just going out into the oceans, like just petroleum waste. Mm. And so this fabric is made from petroleum waste. So it's super uh, durable. It's um, You can barely get it to stain. It's extremely water resistant. And um, and then I think that's where coming from outside of the uh, outdoor industry was helpful because that's all this fabric that is typically used for different types of outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, oh, I can use it for gear. And the factory that I was working or am working with um, were very skilled and they thought, hey, we think it's doable too. And so using Olefin, um, for that first urban explorer bag, but now I use it on the the True Grit line, which is a handlebar bag and a saddle bag. Mm. Um, I'm the only uh, brand company that I know of um, using Olefin to make bags out of. Wow! Um, and you're you know you're using such a great resource with fabric that would otherwise be destroyed or put in a landfill mm-hmm. or all that good stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I'm not sure that's my favorite one, but I am, I am proud of discovering this fabric. And so far, I mean, I've um, been fortunate 
with the um, with this new uh, line of True Grit. Well, new I mean, came out last year, but um, having handle like on the bike bags mm-hmm. and um, having some pro cyclists um, test it, and it's I mean it's held up. It's it's a really um, great fabric. So it's it's that would be my 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 um, my baby, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And um, we'll talk about it at the end. But fiercehazel.com is where you listeners need to go. But wait till you're done with this podcast before you go, right? <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> it'll be there. It, yeah, it'll still be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you mentioned, you know, like uh, being a uh, women-owned business, like going out to Vietnam and being the first women that they would work with. I'm assuming that there are plenty of other challenges that you face as a female-owned business. Do you want to touch on any? Yeah, I've, people have um, asked me that before, and it's hard. Um, I don't really know how to respond just because I don't have any other basis to compare it to. Sure, yeah. Like, you know, because I am a woman, like I don't know how would would be different i can i can guess um i mean i think most of my struggles is more from coming from outside the the typical cycling industry mm-hmm. like not being part of that dominant culture um whether it's one i'm a woman and two um i didn't get into biking until after i was 40 mm-hmm. so i um like I love going to, you know, these big bike events, like for example, like Sea Otter, which is um, a race that has over the past few years, especially since some of the biking trade shows have fallen by the wayside. It's just almost like a big trade show for cycling. And it's cool. Like I love, I love cycling culture. And that's why I got into Fierce Hazel because mm-hmm. I, I love all bike stuff, you know, road bikes, racing. I think it's just cool. But you go there or I go there and I'm like, oh, wow, it's a lot of dudes. <laughs> you know, there's still a lot of dudes, <laughs> like, and um, and also again, I'm older, and I think a lot of people get into, say, making gear because they were cyclists and they get into it and they know people in the industry and they start that way. So coming in from outside, I think is a little bit harder. But what I like about that, or what works for me, is that. I identify with whoever, like, outside the dominant cycling culture, whatever that may be, Mm -hmm. which is most of us, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's most of us. I think, I forget the statistics, but there's, there's something like 14 million people with bikes in the U.S. And then the people who bike, I think, over a third of the, 104, I have in front of me. So um, this is from... Uh, people with bikes, they do surveys mm-hmm. every year. Yep. Um, and from 2022, basically there's about 5 million people who bike at least 104 days a year. So that would mean, you know, a third of their, their time is days are on the bike. And that's 5 million people, right? But people who are registered race road cyclists or cyclists are like 110,000 people. Oh, wow. So, wow. So like... <laughs> So we are the people. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, um, I, you know, it's like anything. It's like understand like the the top end. They kind of drive the trends, and but uh, I really like uh, finding the communities that aren't necessarily the um, the super elite, the, the race cult. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I appreciate. I mean, I love. I mean, you know, I, I definitely enjoy 
kind of being on the fringe mm-hmm. of pro cycling because I'm such a, it's like being an you know, athlete. I mean, I'm such a admirer of the dedication that it takes and the right, time to right. put in to get to the top of the field. But I just like riding my bike, you know, <laughs> like with friends on a gravel road and being in shape enough to do it. And um, I have, you know, through like events like uh, like RPI, which I've been to a couple times. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Rebecca Rush, who is, you know, the queen of pain, world Cycle. I mean, her credentials are too many to even list. Right. Uh, <laughs> but she is a great example, and also other the other pros that she works with and are friends with are really inclusive. And like her event, uh, Rebecca's Private Idaho, is one that I've been to and I've seen. Another. Uh, speaking of which, at Sea Otter, um, she has a presence there. Mm-hmm. Um, she's sponsored, I think, by live cycling and um, she has her be good foundation which is an amazing foundation that um fierce hazel we we sponsor a little bit or donate to mm-hmm. um and she makes a huge effort to get all kinds of people on bikes and the last year when i was at sea otter um, different companies and they do um you know sponsored rides like you know ride with the pro this and that and the people that show up for her rides are such a great mix like you can see all genders, all colors mm-hmm. of people and from pros down to non-pros. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens by making an effort. You know, it doesn't mean you just say, hey, everyone's invited. It means you have to put in the time, the money and the resources to actually reach out, find those people, yeah, give them money, help them. Because it does feel exclusionary if you're coming from outside the industry. And um Anyway, so I, I really um, uh, appreciate that type of vibe, and um, and hopefully my products appeal to everyone. I mean, they're definitely designed to stand up to a pro cyclist needs, mm-hmm. uh, super lightweight and 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 water resistant and all that kind of good stuff. But I think they're products that any cyclist can use and will be helpful for for anyone. And assuming, I mean, I don't even have to say this, that you use your own products, uh, Mm -hmm. what's your, I don't know, favorite snack or item that you keep in one of your bags? I love snacks. (laughs) (laughs) I love snacks. Um, Well, I have my handlebar bag. I mean, I use that on everything, not just my gravel bike, but my road bike, just because I've become such a fan of the burrito bag concept and um you'll pretty much always find a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in there ah that's just my my go-to or you know or the yeah that's that's it my favorite yeah my favorite peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are um slightly smushed and at room temperature smushed yeah oh 100 it's my favorite yep yeah yeah definitely and yeah on a good day you might even add a little bit of honey in there too oh Red, you know, that's risky. You, you need the, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna get that bread all soggy. But. <laughs> and I did. Okay, so this is a tip. You may already know this, but um, I did uh, the Grand Canyon, and we packed peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that were extremely smushed when we ate them. But mm-hmm. the trick that the friend that I was with told me was that if you put peanut butter on both pieces of bread, and mm-hmm. then jelly on top of the mm-hmm. peanut butter when you smash your bread together. It won't yeah. get wet and soggy. And that's that was key. like, that's a game changer for me. That's key. Yeah. Well, also, you get to have more peanut butter. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Something about a slightly squished sandwich is really appealing to me. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of, of eating in general. I think we yeah. all should be. Yeah. Um, but as we know, again, there's that dominant cycling culture that has all this toxic weight diet things. And um, something that I've learned, especially through the, um, the coaching that I get from um, Basecamp, which is the winter training program, mm-hmm. and is that most people overtrain and, and under-recover. And I've kind of taken that to heart or trying to learn from that and really um, eat more and recover better. Mm-hmm. And I found, you know, through my um, party of one experiment, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, <laughs> but it seems to be working um, just by, yeah, eating more and, and fueling better on the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually why I do love my, um, the handlebar bag, the true grip bag, because I can keep lots of snacks up there. And I love the snack. Yeah. I love snacks. I love snacks. Yeah. I love, I love even snopping at the, you know, whatever the um, like a gas station and picking up a Snickers bar right. or whatever. It's just, it's just fun. And, um, kind of getting rid of, or working to get rid of that, um, bad evil thoughts of like, you need to like starve yourself on the bike or some yeah. crazy crap like that. Like well, just, and it goes back to so angry. <laughs> Well, and it goes back to feeling like a kid, you know, like you're on your bike, you're having fun and, oh, I'm going to have a Snickers because I can. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, I am also part of that base camp you mentioned, and it, um, is definitely a different thought process, the, the way that you eat and when you eat and the amount Mm -hmm. of protein. And it's really interesting and, um, uh, eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah. Especially just looking at, I mean, just the science. Right. I, uh, I'm not a science person, but I, I appreciate when other people tell me <laughs> and just like, like carbs are energy, right? That's where you get your energy from. Yeah. I mean, it's just science. Like you need them to get your spike. Right. They just, it's a, right. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. It's science. Yeah. It's like, we're not, then maybe there's 1% in the population that don't fit that, but yeah. Right. Well, you, and you there's a, them. and when you're riding your bike, it's a whole different world than sitting on your couch all day. So that's, yeah. you know, that's a whole different topic, I guess. But, um, yeah. so I read on your website and absolutely love this. It's a quote. So I'm going to read it to you, even though okay. you're the one that said it. But <laughs> you said, on my bike, I can choose where I want to go, for how long and who with. I am in control and living in the moment. There are no rules. I absolutely love that quote. Like, and it's back to what you said earlier, where we are the people. We are the ones riding our bikes and having fun. Yeah, I agree. And and also gets back to a little bit about being in control of one's life. And I'm responsible for making myself happy. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's been something that I've had to learn as an exercise, like just as a thing to. I know if I'm feeling down which happens a lot i think we all are anyway it's a fact of life for me and i'm like oh what's going to help me is to get up and do something mm-hmm. it doesn't always have to be to get on the bike uh, which is ideal if you can but just to get up and do something it's a little, little bit of that taking action and um being consistent and um and yeah so i found that it works like when I get out on my bike, uh, all of a sudden I'm, I'll say it again, like I'm a happy kid again. Yeah, and yeah. it's great to have enough fitness. And I'm, um, I try to be grateful um, as much as I can to remember to, to, to know that I have, when I have the fitness, which is now to be able to get outside and ride my bike, 
and go wherever I want to. It's such a, a gift, you know, and I don't want to want to remember that, you know, like it's, it's, I'm lucky. I'm lucky I get to do this because mm-hmm. it is pretty freaking fun. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> pretty freaking fun. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we briefly mentioned RPI and you mentioned Sea Otter. And um, based on your Instagram, I know you've like ridden your bike in other countries as well, which mm-hmm. is just be that's a whole different. We could do a whole podcast on just talking about that. But yeah. do you have any adventures on your horizon as far as bicycle related? Um, I, I have signed up for an event in Montana called the last best ride, Hmm. which, um, looks like a really, it's in July, just another really fun, inclusive event that's woman run. And I've never been to Montana. So I am looking to get to sign up for events or go places to help me get, it's a motivation to leave LA, leave this area. Um, and just to find new places to ride. Like I just really enjoy riding my bike other places. So Montana's gonna be a fun one. Um, I've enjoyed uh, f- finding a place called um, Patagonia in Arizona, which mm-hmm. has a really nice gravel culture down there and not too far of a drive from LA. Um, I've enjoyed for sure uh, Sun Valley and Ketchum, RPI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to do um, Iowa. I was going to say, you're anything. always invited yeah. to Iowa and, and um, yeah. Ragbri. And Bentonville looks fun. Yeah. You know, so many, so many places. And um, yeah, and I have been lucky to to bike in, in Italy a few times. And, you know, during the first time I went, it was one of those things where, um, you know, a friend mentioned it and the, this ride. And, and at the time, it was like, oh, if I don't do this, I'm going to feel regrets. Mm. And so I try to look at... Um, uh, no, I often look at things that way. It's like things are hard, are can be hard and scary. But like, if I don't do it, will I feel like I regret not doing it? And if I say yes, I'm like, well, maybe I should try that because I'm still trying to, you know, stretch myself and do do hard things. And you know, everyone has a different version of what's hard. Um, but for me, it is actually kind of hard to get out to new places and, and meet new people is, is for this introvert can be a stretch, mm-hmm. but it's always worthwhile. Like I meet great people, wonderful people. And it's just, it's just cool. So I love um, it. Yeah, I love it. it. This has been such a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Um, I guess it's via microphone to microphone instead of mm-hmm. in person, but in person one day for it, sure. Yeah, for sure. Whether it's Iowa or RPI or some other event, I hope that we uh, our paths cross in real life. But I'm sure they will. Will you tell the listeners um, again where they can buy Fierce Hazel, and also if they want to follow you on any socials? Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, FierceHazel.com is is the best place to best place and one of the only places to buy the fierce hazel product and uh on instagram is uh fierce dot hazel it should be pretty pretty easy and um actually i enjoy instagram for the community i think it's a really nice place where i get to learn about other events and other people um and just learn keep learning really mm-hmm. and i absolutely love your instagram because you're always smiling and happy, and it just gives me that same positive energy when I look at your face or your oh, Instagram you. page. Yeah, so yeah. I, like you're riding your bike and you're like, "Yay, I'm riding my bike!" Yeah. And then I'm like, "I, know. Yeah. I need to go it's do pretty, that." 
pretty much how it is. I mean, I, you know, like many of us, we tend to post the um, highlights, the better oh, for sure, yeah. part of, but I really am pretty much always happy on the bike. So it's, it, it's win-win. I love it. Well, thank Frankie, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story and Fierce Hazel. Well, Murph, thanks so much. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. I really feel honored to be a part of your podcast. So thank you. Well, listeners, that's it for this week. Email me at morphologypodcast at gmail.com if you have a topic or the name of a cyclist you find interesting. Support my podcast at patreon.com slash morphology and visit both my Facebook and Instagram pages for daily entertainment. I have more great episodes in the pipeline, so I hope you continue to be a Morphology Podcast listener. Listener.